Amos. Chapter 2, we'll briefly review. Thank you, sir. Briefly review chapter 1 in our setting here. So Amos, his name is uh, really equal to his mission. And his name means to lift a burden, Amos. Uh, Burden bearer. He is bearing the burden of Yahweh. He ministered to the ten northern tribes two years before the earthquake. Must have been a major earthquake that went through Israel at that time. Uh, Uzziah was Judah's king and Jeroboam II was Israel's king during that time. Uh, Outwardly, Israel was really prospering, which is really difficult for the natural spiritual mind. Now I say natural spiritual because naturally, even though we're spiritual people, we imagine if you're sinning and living in wickedness, then then it's going to be poverty, blindness, all kinds of bad things. But often it's the opposite. It's the prosperity that actually keeps them in their sin. They don't see the judgment of God. So in his mercy, he lets the wicked go his way. And Judah, Jonah, if we look in Second Kings there, he prophesied of this prosperity and that they would expand their borders. So they actually expanded their borders after they'd been uh, attacked uh, some years before. Uh, contemporaries were, as I said, Jeroboam II, Zechariah, Shalom, Shalom, actually, and Jonah were the contemporaries. Now, you think Shalom, that's S-H-A-L-L-U-M, transliterated. He was the king in Israel? Yeah, he lasted about a month. He got killed, murdered. I mean, this is a rough sled being in the leadership in, in uh, the 10 uh, northern tribes. He stepped out of line, turned your back. Here, watch out for the knife coming in the back. These guys were vicious, power-hungry. But Jeroboam, Zechariah, that all can be found in 2 Kings 14 and 15, if you're interested in that. But, you know, the Lord's showing mercy to Israel. And he's using Amos, a guy who, from the east, I think it's a little bit east of the Dead Sea, a sheep herder. He bred sheep for a living. He's taking this farm boy, farm man, and taking him to the metropolis, to the, to the headquarters of Israel's idolatry in the north. And I can relate to that. I was a farm boy from the Midwest, and I'm down here breaking up the fallow ground that hasn't been plowed for a while. The hardness that is in this, this religious state that we live in, this surroundings, this religious spirit that's present in the south. And it's hard, it's rough plowing, but God, you know, doesn't this look like a misfit? You take this guy that's out in the middle of nowhere and you bring him to Samaria to talk to the royalty. Lower class, upper class. You think you have a calling you don't feel worthy of, why would God use me to do this? You see, it just doesn't fit, but God chooses what? If someone prayed this, he, we heard this tonight of someone, the foolish things, God takes the foolish things to confound the wise. 
And so he was that kind of guy and uh, that kind of calling upon him. And, and as we pointed out last week, there's this uh, literary approach for three transgressions and for four punishment will not be turned away. So it's, it's, it's through this first chapter and into the second chapter that we'll come uh, cover tonight. And so it's just an announcement of the coming judgments that was going to be upon Israel. Uh, th- you know, for three sins, yes, and but in reality there's more sins than three, and there's actually more than four. It's implying all kinds of sins. That's the idea behind this phraseology. So as we you know, uh, open in chapter 2, what we call chapter 2, but it's just another paragraph in the, in the Hebrew. Uh, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab, now let's see, speaking to this city, so he, he, we've been covering these uh, various countries surrounding uh, Israel and Judah. Uh, it's the judgment of the nations. We, we, in chapter 1, we, we covered the transgressions of Tyre, uh, and Gaza, some of these cities that were near, that were uh, bringing uh, so much corruption into the world around them. Uh, Amman, uh, which would be Jordan today, uh, they, they're in on it. Now it's Moab's turn. Uh, so, for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. And I will send fire upon Moab and it shall devour the palaces of Kerioth. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound. I will cut off the judge from its midst and slay all its princes with him, says the Lord. So, Burning the bones of a king. They were desecrating the graves of the royal families. They would go in, you know, oftentimes these people would be buried with personal items that were of value. So they're opening up, they're exposing this corpse and then stripping it and then burning it to the point that it turned to powder. And so this is obviously a great disrespect and... A great display, really. It's it's just another display of rebellion because we're naturally sh- we show respect to the dead. We don't speak, you know. It's the way we were raised in our culture, anyway. That you respect the people of past. You don't speak evil of them, even if you knew them and you knew that they may have been less than what they should have been. You, you keep that inward. It's an in, innate thing. You just don't do these things, right? And um, God's going to require that because everyone is created in the image of God no matter how much they've allowed the enemy or the choices that they've made to, to, to scar that. And so um, we'll just show that respect. And they did disrespect and desecrate these graves. So what does God require when we transgress? You know, this is a, a good question. What was he requiring of them? The same thing he requires of us as repentance. Just what is repentance? You know, it's essentially it's a spiritual 180. It's a U-turn. You know, uh, returning to God. You're going away from God. You're headed towards darkness, and then you turn around, and now you're headed towards the light. And that's what for what ends up. It, no one's receives forgiveness until there's, there's the turn. There has to be the turn. It's faith and repentance that. Re- brings salvation to the soul 
And um, we can't break it down. We don't know when, when that line's crossed, but God knows. That's what matters. Uh, so turning away from the darkness is how we receive the forgiveness that God offers to us. You know, the, the inevitable outcome of darkness is judgment. All sin and, dar- and judgment, uh, darkness is going to end up in the lake of fire. It's going to be destroy, destroyed on that great day of his visitation. Uh, it, is there, God's reign, as we read this evening, that is going to be one of truth and righteousness. Uh, we hardly can get our minds around how awesome that will be. He's going to bring fire, as we read there, judgment upon them. They, this act of desecrating those graves and acting the leadership, uh, you know, allowing that to happen, just simply brought repercussions upon their own people. It, 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 it is like, okay, that's it, and now God's going to release his judgment. There comes a time, and God know, only God knows, when the sins of a nation reach to heaven, and God says, that's it. God is burdened by the activities of the nations that are around Israel. And he, he's just, you're going to see here tonight, he's had it. It's like he's, in one place we'll see here, uh, there, it's like he's carrying this load. You know, when you start carrying a load, and if you aren't careful, you can spill it because it gets, becomes too heavy for you. That's, that's the writer, the prophet, describing this burden that God is carrying. I can no longer take these people are doing and I can't help but draw the parallels of what's going on our own, in our own nation to realize that you know there, it's just a matter of time and I have um, I have a heavy heart when I contemplate where our nation is at I don't say these things lightly and I don't and it may just be me and I'm not going to say it's thus saith the Lord in that sense, but I have this ominous feeling that the only way that this direction that we're headed can stop is if there's the judgment of God. And, and what that means is, is he pulls back his hand of protection. That's how sometimes the, the judgment of God falls upon a nation, is that he just removes his protection. He lets the darkness come in. He lets people have what they are, want and lets them worship the idols that they choose. And in doing so, that invites terror. Just like what happened today in Kansas City. That's just a for instance of what... Now, will it take massive carnage? Will there be mass death? Could possibly happen. We could see the enemy, God allowing the enemy to come in. We've got people flowing flooding into this nation and they're not all immigrants some of these people are they're not just thieves the thievery that's like for example the thievery is one thing these gangs in New York raiding these shops just pilfering just whatever they want they take you know what they do then they load their vehicles up tons of stuff and they drive to Florida and they sell it well why don't they just Steal it in Florida and sell it there because they get arrested there. You know, you start defunding the police, you start doing some of these things, you're going to see a whole lot of things uh, happen that are beyond imagination, the crimes against humanity that can be 
I mean, in, in the part of the judgment here, again, you know, against uh, Moab, uh, is that their leadership would be cut off, princes would be slain. I have to pray for a soft heart and for forgiveness because I become angry and I want the Lord to just take these people out that are allowing it to happen. They're culpable. They'll be held accountable. Nobody's going to get away with anything in the end. God is just. These leaders in our nation that are sending our money, doing these things, the people that are committing these crimes and allowing others to allow this to go and unchecked, they're going to stand before God. And, and you know, I'd like them to stand before men and be prosecuted and then let them arrange that meeting with God. But that's another point. In verses 4 and 5, he now turns from the surrounding nations. Now he's coming home, Judah. See, Judah, you know, Israel and Judah weren't free from the sin. They were, as we'll see here, they're just, they're just as filthy and broken as the surrounding nations. For three transgressions and for four, as we read there, I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. But I will send fire upon Judah, and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Again, God had a higher standard for Judah. To whom much is given, much will be required. To whom little is given, little is required. And that's the thing about it. God's judgment is always equitable. It's always fair. The people were complaining, well, it's not fair, it's not fair. No, the Lord says to, to Ezekiel, no, no. You say this, but in reality, you're not fair. And he calls them out. And this is, what is the downward progression here? Number one, they despised the word of God. For people in the church who, who say the Old Testament is not relevant, what do you think that really means? They're despising. They would never admit to that. But I can tell you that's equivalent. When you reject the word of God, the written revelation that we have, oh, well, it's been added to and taken. We don't really know it's a doctrine of man. You know what? It's not perfect, but it's sufficient. What we have has been verified through the Dead Sea Scrolls that it's like, for example, the book of Isaiah is right on the money. So there's no excuse. And the people that make those comments probably haven't even read the Bible. They're just parroting something that they heard. Despising the word of God is the first step in heading towards judgment. There are five D's here, actually. Despising the word, disobedient to the word. Notice here, um, you despise the law of the Lord and not kept his commandments. These people were not ignorant. They knew what was right. But they were rebellious. They, they, look at what it says there. Their lies lead them astray. What, what kind of lies? Deception. Because you, you despise the word of the Lord. You're not willing to do it, but you are willing to worship idols. And what do idols do? They blind and they deceive. People that serve the creation end up blinded, and they can't see. They can't understand. They don't see it. And it always leads them astray. And, of course, it says that they were following the ways of their father. And they, so they, learned, they didn't learn anything from history. They didn't learn that their parents 
in their they picked up their parents' habits. That's why it says in the you know Lord says passing judgment from you know even to the third and fourth generations. Well, they just keep repeating the same sins, and so they're going to get the same kind of repercussions. So generational sin, I don't like to focus on that. I, as far as a believer and all this, I need to just, you know, I don't get into that generational curse thing. When you become a Christian, you're forgiven. The yoke is broken. My family had <clears throat> generational curses in a sense because they were living outside faith. And so they passed the gener- sins from one generation to the other. Well, it's, what breaks the yoke? The blood of Jesus. I don't need to repent and pay, you know, <laughs> That whole thing just it's just insane to think that you know that's upon a child of God who's been forgiven that I'm responsible for what my parents did. It's not what the Bible teaches. We'll just stick with the Bible teaches. But regardless, it ends in devastating destruction. There's a devouring fire. When you fire is always linked with judgment, uh, typically uh, when it comes to uh, in these contexts of. Uh, judgment and all fires kind of the idiom that's used uh, so what ended up happening to Judah anybody remember what happened in, in 576 BC <laughs> Babylon came and raised the place they burned Jerusalem to the ground slaughtered the royal family burned the temple destroyed the palace the king's palace all the houses in the cities were burned and the remain the people that didn't die they deported that's complete devastation God is not mocked whatever we sow will be reaped and so verses 16 6-16 are the transgressions of Israel and uh, God's response in the middle of it all there in, in his position there was no repentance there was no forgiveness because they didn't repent so the result is there's no reprieve from judgment see that's what happens when we turn what not only we turn from darkness and receive forgiveness but we're avoiding the inevitable the inevitable is if you a person continues down the path of darkness eventually there's a judgment day when we repent and we turn to the to the light we avoid that judgment that's gonna. It's inevitable. All sin will be judged. We can escape that by turning from it. And this is sort of the idea here. What were the sins of Israel? The one that Amos was, by and large, called to, to address in verse six. It says, that "For three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of sandals." They pant after the dust of the earth which is on the head of the poor and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his daughter go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lay down at every altar on close, taken in pledge and drink wine of the condemned in the house of God, their God. And so this is what we have is debt slavery. You, you, the righteous... <clears throat> Say they borrowed some money, they didn't pay it back. Maybe they broke the, uh, uh, they're breaking the agreement. We don't really know what was going on there, but they would take the righteous who's good for the debt. A righteous person will repay. They're not going to steal from you. They're righteous. But they're selling them off. Okay, you don't have the money today? Well, goodbye. And they'll 
sell them off. This is, there's just a hard-heartedness there. And then the poor, it says, which would be the needy. So they're being sold into slavery over insignificant. Oh, I loaned you a pair of shoes. I gave you a, a pair of shoes and you're not paying for it? Off you go. I mean, just can't imagine, you know, the, the punishment for the crime, so to speak, were not on the same level. They exploited the people, according to verse 7, trampling the rights of the people. Why would why don't we trample over the rights of other people? It's because we're completely hard-hearted. They trampled the head of the port into the dust. That's what that's talking about there, the, uh, the pant after, which it's a word for trample. So they're trampling uh, these people to, you know, just making them eat dirt, so to speak, is kind of the expression. They pervert the way of the humble, those that are, that are afflicted, make it harder for them. And they defile the name of the Lord by their sexual perversions. So a complete exploitation of the people. And this is what's, see, these are the things that are parallel to what's going on in our nation. Think of some of the things that, that people are being prosecuted for. J6 is a good example. Here we see the ill, not only all of that, but the illicit worship. You know, they're bowing down to these false gods and they're taking the things that they've taken from other people and using them to worship their God. Just unbelievable blindness. Stolen things. So that's the kind of, that's how far the, the into the depravity they had gone. Verses 9 through 12, we see how they rejected the grace of God. And this is probably the most hurtful of all things, I think, to the heart of God is they rejected and they continued to resist the grace of God. Yet it was I, says I destroyed the Amorite before them whose height was like the height of cedars. He was as strong as oaks. <clears throat> so what's he talking about there? What do we know about the Amorites. They were one of the seven bloodlines that were kaharim, devoted to destruction. And they were giants. I mean, we, these guys are making the Israelites look like grasshoppers. So that's, as we know that language back in Numbers. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. It was not so, you children of Israel. Was it not so, you children of Israel, says the Lord? But I, you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets saying, do not prophesy. So the very purpose why God was being gracious to them, giving them spiritual leaders and examples of what it means to be holy and set apart to him, they cast it aside. How sad. So they dis God destroyed the enemies and God went before them because they were the ones that were occupying the land. Now, now when you study this, you need to, people need to understand Genesis 6 to understand this. And you, when you understand Genesis 6 and that whole thing of the Nephilim, it's a thread and a motif that runs through the Old Testament. And they were there. It says in Genesis 6 that, you know, that this, the giants were before and after the flood. Now, how this happened, we don't really, are not given that. But when you break this down a little bit, notice that he says, 
I destroyed them before you, whose height was like the height of cedar. So he's implying the giants here. And you won't find this in a commentary, generally speaking. It's really sad. You know how I judge an Old Testament commentary? I just opened to Genesis 6. If you, if you try to feed me the, you know, that they were daughters of Seth and they intermarried, the godly line intermarried with the ungodly line, I'm done with you. Because if you can't be honest with the text, how do I know you're being honest anywhere else? And I don't have any mercy. No, I'm not using that commentary. I don't care how smart you are in the language. You got to tell the truth. That is unmistakable what happened there. Look, and the Dead Sea Scrolls and all the evidence and the way the Jewish people looked at it, I'm going to trust their opinions a lot more than some American commentator who spent a few years in seminary at a liberal college, right? Enough of the, just so you know where I stand on that. <laughs> but think about this here. I destroyed his fruit from above. What is he talking about there? I don't know. I'm not saying this is exactly what it means. But I trust the Holy Spirit to teach me and give me understanding sometimes. And his roots beneath. How, how are the enemies of God empowered? These fallen ones, these giants, were empowered by the fallen angels. There's, there's communion in the dark. Everybody, uh, if you are a st- student of Greek mythology, and, uh, these giants were referred to as titans. Same connotation there. So you have these, the gods intermingling with the children of men, and you have this hybrid, this Nephilim. And I believe in the flood, the Lord just wiped out all of them. And those departed spirits became the demons that you and I have to deal with today. I do not, so I'm making differentiation between demons and fallen angels. Fallen angels are not disembodied. They have their body. They can come and go, apparently. They appear as men. I mean, it's a kind of a weird sci-fi th- consideration, I'm sure. Um, demons are, are disembodied. They don't have their... The Jews called them a bastard spirit. They're, they're not legit. They should, they're a hybrid. They should, never should have happened. It never should have happened. But this is what they're working with. So the fruit above, I believe, is their connection with the darkness. And they receive power and quote their dark anointing by their communion with the darkness. The roots below again connected with the demonic world. They're completely dark uh, in every conceivable way. And this is this is very difficult for us because it's hard as Christians, it's hard as human beings that are saved to understand the evilness of evil. We're starting to see the face being pulled back from evil. We're start, we, can, we can see it manifesting more and more in our culture. But we're talking, in this level, is beyond our, and we don't even want to go there. This is what was going on. You know, and when you read about the promised land, it was a land flowing with milk and honey, was it not? Was it that, like, this is a great place. Well, then, how is it that we have this report also, in the same context, it's a land that, um, devours its inhabitants. 
really cl- that wording might be a little sh- off. How can you? How can you? How do you reconcile those two? You've got process, you've got fruit that there takes two guys with a pole to carry the grapes back to camp. That's pretty cool. That's a pretty amazing fruit farm you got going there. What a vineyard, right? How is it that they would have this negative connotation? If you put it together, he's what they're alluding to, I believe, is that they were cannibals. In satanic worship, there's the drinking of blood. There's, the, the, there's human sacrifice, and there's a consuming of human flesh. They're bringing in this life. It brings power. This is the darkness that I'm talking about, the, the roots below and the fruit above, that whole de- demonic, dark worship of Satan. And this is what was going on, and God has, took out those seven nations before them. He wiped out the giants. Nice. That's grace. God's calling that grace. See, that's why he took them out because he knew if he allowed them that they would destroy his people and he wasn't going to subject them to that. No, I love my people. They're my people. This is their land. I promise it to Abraham. I'm keeping my word. And these guys... So Satan had 400 years. He had 400 years from Abraham until this moment to build that whole thing up and, and say, no, Yahweh, you're not taking this land because it's mine. And how'd that work out for him? It's a good history lesson. Nobody stops Yahweh. And he's saying to, to Israelites, look at your history. I led you out of bondage. I sustained you for 40 years. I, raised a, I loved your kids. I raised them up. And yet you rejected them. I mean, those are heinous crimes and sins. Now you can understand verses 13 through 16 as we close here. Behold, I am weighed down by you as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in the day. In that day, says the Lord. God is weighed down. He's pressed down. It's like I said earlier, he's he's wobbling with this overload of, I can't take this anymore. I've got to deal with these sins of the nations around me. And the, when God gets to this, and this is what I think was going to happen. When judgment comes, if you n- notice this, and this is what makes the study of the minor prophets sort of drives this concept home. When the judgment of God hits and when it begins to come, it's unrelenting. Nobody will stay the hand of the Lord when it begins to come. And it will come without mercy. And I, this is the part that gets me, because when, when it begins, when will it end? It will end, but look what, look what happens. Nothing they do will shelter them. That's what he's saying here. The flight shall perish from the swift. The mighty shall not be able to deliver himself. All the personal, it doesn't matter your personal ability, no matter what you stored up, I mean, it 
God will blow on it and it will be gone. The swift, the strong, the warrior, the archers and the horsemen. No escape. Like I said, nobody escapes the judgment of God. Even the brave soldiers run. What's the Bible tell us? Is a frightful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If judgment begins in the house of God and it's happening and it's been happening in our country. If judgment begins in the house of God, where shall the ungodly appear? And yet, as we know the principle of God, he's able to separate the righteous from the wicked when he measures out judgment. Because he's just and holy. Think about Will bad things happen to Christians? Yeah, they can. But I think God tempers any of the trials that you and I may go through. If you read at the end of First Samuel when David was, was on the run and he was in Ziklag and they went out and on a battle and they came back and the Amalekites, a type of the flesh, raided that city, took all the women, their wives, their children, all their stuff, their goods. And that says that David and his men, they wept until they could weep no more. And they were so, they were mad at David. I got to blame somebody for this. They're about ready to stone him. You read the story. And he, you know, they're just, I mean, ah, bad things happen to good people. And here's the other thing. Wasn't he anointed by God? Why is he letting Saul chase him all over the world? Why? Why is he? I mean, why does he let this happen? Why does he let bad things happen to his people? Well, that's not the end of the story. This is the hope we have. This is why I bring it up. He he says he inquired of the Lord. He strengthened himself in the Lord. I love that. That's what we have to do right now. This is why it concerns me, to be honest with you, why there's not more people coming in the midweek. You know, there's a lot of zeal on Sunday morning, and I, you know, it's wonderful. Paul say amen to that, right? It's wonderful. If you're home on Wednesday nights <laughs> watching TV, shame on you. <laughs> there, there's some power here tonight. In our prayer time, there's some power. We pulled down some strongholds. I don't know. I don't know how you. I know what I was sensing in the spirit, man. He, I just got a feeling he, he's going to get saved. Something good's going to come from this, and we will continue to pray. Back to our story, and I'll finish here. And thank you for your patience. David went out with those guys, and they. It says that they tracked him down with some help from an Egyptian guy that was left sick. He led them to that camp and they recovered all. They restored it all. And there's some other, a lot of other details in that if you're interested in the story. But the point is, in the end, in the end, God has us. And God will take care of, even though evil may befall us, even though we don't want to suffer and we don't want to be subjected to the pain in, of this fallenness, God is with us. And we know, as I read begin at the beginning of the service, we know how this ends. 
We're going to be we're going to be living with we're going to be living with the guy. Excuse me, Lord. We're going to be living with the Almighty. He's right there. No more faith. New body, new home, forever. You can't beat this. What you can't, <laughs> such grace. You got to think about this stuff. You've got to get. You got to just stop looking this way and go this way, right? <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement you give us, even though we have our issues, Lord. You love us. You are with us, and we have nothing but good things for our future. And again, we just ask, Father, that you'd give us wisdom, give us understanding that we might walk in the Spirit and abide in your word and do the things that are pleasing in your sight. And again, we just want to agree together, Lord, for a mighty move of your Spirit upon Jessica, Lord, as she goes forth as your messenger to speak your word and the power of your Holy Spirit right into the heart and spirit of her Father, Lord. We pray that powerful visitation, Lord, that your spirit will bear witness in such an awesome way, Lord, that he'll just melt before you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.